0: Directors Club with Brad and Al. We're podcasting as part of the Now Playing Network. In each episode of the Directors Club, we take a look at the films of a single director, their breakout films, their career touchstones, uh, personal labors of love, and hidden gems that could be found amongst their filmography. You can never tell what themes and connections to other films can come up when you look at a director's whole body of work. Come join us for the film journey. In this journey, we go on a dark mysterious trek to a field that few men fear to tread trying to find the fun and enjoyment of movies that are 80 years old (laughs) hi folks Uh, i'm al and i'm brad and we are joined today by uh jeff Breitman, who with rebecca martin hosts a fellow uh podcast on a now playing network called fresh perspective there they look at a theme every month through the lens of two different films he's also a theater actor in the chicago scene whose most recent work includes a sketch comedy show about all the u.s presidents called the electables He's also co-hosted with Rebecca and Mira Brady, a great series called the CFLX Movie of the Week, where he's contributed with podcasts and essays, including what I personally think is the definitive written piece about Charlie Kaufman's Synecdoche, New York. And on top of all that, (laughs) he's a super fan of both the Universal Horror Pictures and this era of film in general. So welcome, Jeff.
1: Thanks for having me on the show. It's a real honor to be a part of the Director's Club. I... uh, uh, love you guys and I'm uh, pretty excited to be talking about a director who I think doesn't get enough credit for his style and sense of humor and deserves to have a spotlight shown on some of his eternal works of art but also some of his lesser-known ones
2: well we're really glad you're on board and uh it's great uh once again to have a chance to uh talk films because both al and i have been on uh fresh perspective and really enjoyed our experiences there
1: yes and we've been happy to have you for anyone who is listening there will be a new episode we sort of took a break in october based on uh Uh, Very busy schedules that each of us have, but we're coming back with our uh, part two of our exploration of 1976 films with a podcast about Carrie, and that should be up before Thanksgiving, fingers crossed.
0: (laughs) Sweet. It'd be great to go and hear what you guys had to say on that.
1: Yeah, yeah. So looking
0: forward to that and uh, very excited for today's discussion. Uh, Speaking of the Now Playing Network, the mastermind behind the Now Playing Network, uh, Jim Leszkowski, has put together a benefit CD for the relief for people who are dealing with Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. It's uh, a CD that's called Relief, a Benefit for Puerto Rico and the Victims of Hurricane Maria. And you can uh, find this CD at Relief.Bandcamp.com features a a slew of artists, including Tracy Bonham, have generously contributed their own efforts for original work for this um, very worthwhile charity. So if you want to go and throw support in musical and financial form, uh, go to Relief.Bandcamp.com and uh, uh, give the CD a listen and a purchase.
1: Yeah, and thanks to Jim for organizing the the effort.
0: Exactly right. Uh, Thanks, Jim. Now, on to Wales. I like what you said, Jeff, about his particular perspective, and one of the things I that was going to be interesting as we go through the films is how is he able to make his own views known through a kind of a very restrictive and an increasingly restrictive, like... Um, studio system because I believe he was his films had different censors issues and and were and a lot of things were cut against his will. And so, how are you able to express in that kind of a situation?
1: Yes, I mean, certain certain of his films uh, uh, got very badly censored before they were released, and then other of his films date from the pre code era and upon later release were badly cut and censored. Um, and so there are different kind of levels, but he kind of, he, he, he entered the film world at a very interesting period of time mm-hmm. and he happened to exit at the height of the studio system. The films he made for Universal um, certainly, I believe, are, are his, his best Um, And he had a kind of an unusual relationship because he achieved such a high level of success.
2: But he didn't start out uh, in film doing that, right? No, no, uh, he didn't. Uh, uh, To give a little
1: biographical background, uh, uh, James Whale comes from England. Uh, He started out in the theater. He was an actor, uh, which led to him being a director as well as a set designer and a costume and scenic designer. He had a love of painting. He was very artistic and had a hand in all aspects of the uh, creation of, you know, a stage show. Um, his production led to uh, directing a play called Journey's End, which was written by a man named R.C. Sheriff, who, which was about uh, returning soldiers of World War One. And that play ended up becoming a smash success on London's West End, which led to a trial run on Broadway in New York, which was a smash success, which led to a contract with Universal Studios, the first film of which obviously was to direct the film version of the hit play, Journey's End.
2: That came out in 1930. Right now, his earlier films fall under the uh, category of pre-code, which you yes. mentioned earlier. So we should uh, clarify that in uh, 1934, uh, under uh, pressure from uh, religious and social groups, Hollywood created uh, what's called the Hayes Code, basically self-imposed uh, censorship on their films. Uh, this. Happened again about midway in nineteen thirty four. So there's a distinct change between the level of adult material before uh, the code was implemented and after. And yeah,
1: f- I, I, I would just add to that, Brad, if I if I may, uh, that uh, generally pre code films uh, uh, are defined as after sound was introduced before the code went into effect in in thirty four. And so it, it's films made in that four-year period. What's interesting about pre-code films are are that the, they touch on so many different issues that are contemporary in, in a sophisticated and kind of ribald way. That is surprising considering the vast majority of films that are in large circulation are from that post-code era. And are are heavily sanitized. It, it it's a little shocking mm-hmm. to see black and white behavior that uh, is is you know it's kind of scandalous: premarital sex, abortion, uh, uh, you know, prostitution, drugs. Um, the, there's all sorts of you know uh, uh, to- topics that were considered taboo in 1934 that didn't really get explored an American film
0: until the code was broken in the late 60s. People who see black-and-white films or older films and just think of it as these absolute stuffy dens of repression where you have the bedrooms of two separate beds and what have you. um, It can be very rewarding when you do luck out and manage to catch a pre-code film because it is very bracing to just see them look at these difficult, complex topics with a level of nuance couldn't be more um uh distinct than like the the strict rules that you can see in evident from films from the uh 40s and 50s.
1: That's that's so true. And there there there's a fascinating double-edged sword to the the freedom that Hollywood filmmakers had in that four-year period in that there's a cynicism in the attitude towards life really that is almost existential even if it's not you know, labeled as such, um, there, there's a really unique quality that I think comes from the depression and, uh, the, the things that Americans were experiencing at the time that got completely sanitized once the code went into effect and, um, exploring some of James Whale's films that fit into this pre-code. Yeah. Standard, I think, uh, uh, is is illuminating. It, it's interesting, and
0: it also is illuminating to when we bring up, like on his first film, the that the journeys end that from the play. It just occurs to me that his career, in some ways, is kind of bookended by war, where his big his big breakout was this film about the travails of these soldiers coming back from World War One?
1: Yes, and I, I, I think I would feel remiss if I didn't mention uh, what I've just remembered as an important biographical fact mm-hmm. about James Whale. Mm. He fought in World War I for England and was taken as a prisoner of war by the Germans, um, was in a prisoner of war camp for, I believe, uh, up to a year before the war ended, and the experience marked him uh profoundly i believe um so i think the fact that his uh a, a great many of his early films deal with the effects of world war 1 on on you know the the people i mean specifically england in a lot of them but uh uh, certainly, you know, later on in his
0: career. That's right. And films. and the wartime experience was definitely on his mind in his subsequent film, uh, Waterloo Bridge in 1931. Sometimes I feel like I don't have a partner. It's a story about a woman who meets up with a young American soldier at uh, Waterloo Bridge uh, during a World War I air raid of London. Um, the soldier is spitting with her and tries to romance her and, uh, and bring her uh, into his family, but not knowing that she really makes her living as a prostitute. Now, just the fact of that, that, of that perspective of her profession and how the film treats it is something that was <laughs> like the is the epitome of something that pre-codes that was able to deal with.
2: Right. Yeah, even in the, the pre-code days, you don't just come out and say prostitute. The fact that it's even allowed to be a subject matter is one of
1: the things that makes it intriguing.
2: It's pervasive in the storyline because, Most of Waterloo Bridge uh, deals with her relationship with uh, another American soldier. They're uh, both in uh, England. And because of her background, she doesn't view any chance of a real relationship because he doesn't know he is smitten with her. And we have very much a uh, a back and forth between this uh, idealistic young soldier and what he thinks is this is true love and her having the secret to hide.
1: Yeah, what what I find kind of really interesting from a 2017 point of view watching Waterloo Bridge is how much attention is paid to May Clark, the actress who plays the prostitute, to to her character's feelings and motivations. This is uh, uh, th- th- this is definitely a film from a woman's point of view, even though it was written by a man and directed by a man mm-hmm. and and everything. But but there's there's a, a definite perspective from. From her character, there is
0: a dignity to the troubles that she's found herself in. Well put. That is Al. something that like um, is so, would be bracing even today. Where um, it couldn't be more different to me than what the "quote unquote" hooker with the heart of gold trope is. Well, this
1: this may be one of the first
0: instances of such a trope. In interestingly, um. Like whereas usually, I think the the, the uh, hooker of the heart of gold is an attempt to basically be wish fulfillment for mostly Hollywood studio executives to feel that the prostitute that they're with is really loves them. Is not? Oh, that's <laughs> interesting. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> um, but it's given but it's given emotional feeling and empathy here, and it's done with a very very high quality performance by um, may clark
2: I'd have to Myra. agree. yes
0: there's a very touching moment early in the film where she just focus on her face as the young soldier has left and this kind of light is flickering on like her eyes and the top part of her head as she just figures and tries to absorb the concept of someone loving her like even in that position and daring to hope And it's given a real nice moment out by Whale and by and by May Clark.
2: I have to agree. Yeah. 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 She's also uh, involved with my favorite scene in the film, which is after uh, the soldier has uh, taken her to meet his family. Um, His mother actually kind of gets the idea that uh, she's got a dark secret, uh, whether she knows exactly what it is uh we're not sure but uh she has a a frank talk with her uh where she basically says let him go and the interaction between those two characters uh makes for a really touching moment in what could have been a lot of melodrama unfortunately i don't think uh the actor playing the soldier uh Douglas Montgomery fairs quite as well i thought he was his he was a little one note and the entire note was naive childishness (laughs) you're right it was
0: i i rub you with an ruv
2: he was pretty flat i
0: i would have to admit in this particular actor's case i kind of think it was that he was either a young actor or no or novice and that like uh Whale was not able to goad a performance. And it also kind of suffers from i it, it the may script, be the way
1: which, the, it may be the way that it's written. I, I, I think uh, Al if that's where where you were going, I, I think he he is kind of flat. he's he's
0: the audience surrogate, if he right. it I find there's very little drama here, kind of mellow or otherwise because, Basically, everybody in this family just has a level of acceptance to this person mm-hmm. and no reservations about where she comes from. And the film moves to just basically a self-realization of the main character more than anything else to uh, to uh, just the complexities of how she rebels
2: against that possibility, you know? Well, well, the effect of this is that it does very much become an actress showcase uh for Mae clark and, and it's great to see because most people know her from two supporting roles that are, are pretty thankless uh both right for, she was a in,
0: grapefruit recipient as one of her most major roles really right, right? that would
2: be in in public, public enemy, enemy with uh james Cagney, and we'll talk about her in uh frankenstein a little later but you know these are not uh, uh not not roles that are memorable whereas here she carries the movie entirely
0: yes very very much so and and the plot or the the storyline as i as I felt through it was just basically of a person who was found herself dealt a bad hand dealing with it as best she could and you wanted her to go and succeed not just against a the restrictions that society has placed on her, but over her own self-doubts of those things. Yeah, definitely. And so it leads to what, at near the end, you get a nice uplifting moment where the soldier is about to be sent off for the front, but then will not leave and says, you will have, to have, to have 10 MPs drag me away before, uh, before you, uh, uh, but I'm not leaving until you say that you will marry me. And she finally does except and then it cuts to a very notable shot um where you see her over because this is happening during another raid you then see a long overhead shot as she's watching her would be fiance drive off and then she's walking down Waterloo bridge and then she suddenly sees something from above and runs off only to die in an explosion And as the crowd looks around to see what's going on, they step on a stole, a stole of hers that she's been wearing all along. Maybe it was something she got when she was originally a chorus girl. That's exactly it. In the opening
1: scene of the film, Mm -hmm. she receives it.
0: And um, to me, that just puts such a real sour (laughs) note on the whole proceedings because...
1: I really enjoyed the film up until that moment, and I felt... Like the ending was a slap in the face. I understood why the ending had to happen because that was just the rules of society at that time. You could not let her have Mm -hmm. a happy ending.
0: But that is so unfair. It is. It is unfair.
1: It's interesting from an academic point of view. Even in the pre-code era, you couldn't allow the hooker with the heart of gold to get off that hook.
2: I wonder if whale was quietly rebelling in the way he shot it, which was so against the mood and almost undercutting the film that came before it, almost a throwaway because I wouldn't doubt it. it, It's a God's eye view. It doesn't work. It's a
0: God's eye
2: view of
0: a director whose attitudes towards God go into some interesting ways, I think.
1: (laughs) That's very true. Waterloo Bridge was the second film that Whale made for Universal Studios, and it was a huge box office success. Uh, Made a lot of money, which gave
0: him clout for his next project. And God is also on his mind in his next project, a film called Frankenstein in 1931. a story about a scientist who despite people thinking him insane henry frankenstein has an idea that will change all of humanity but when it turns out his idea of groupon.com is too crazy even for him he decides to try reanimating life from death instead (laughs) resulting in one of the most
2: iconic movie monsters in history and the birth of what we come to now understand as the horror movie. Now, there were precedents to this um, in the silent era. You uh, did have films like Phantom of the Opera and uh, The Cat in the Canary, and more importantly, the German expressionist films. Yes. Because this, this style that became prevalent in Germany in the silent era was – as far as I know, for the first time, truly embraced by the American studios in the universal uh, horror cycle. So basically, uh, The Cabinet of uh, Dr. Caligari was the first one followed shortly thereafter by uh, Nosferatu. And you're dealing with a lot of insane angles, uh, bizarre setups, extreme use of shadows, things that actually we've come to
1: specific art, mm-hmm. artificiality in, yes. in the sets. Mm-hmm. You know, a sense of forced perspective or 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 things being unrealistic.
2: Right. Right. German we, Expressionism
0: mm-hmm. is the attempt to like use the idea of the sets and the lighting to not just depict things as how things "quote unquote" really are. They're meant to go and have things. Presented in a way to make us feel a certain thing.
1: There's a darkness and a dream logic that borrows from, you know, uh, romantic poets like Baudelaire and Lord Byron, as well as writers like Edgar Allan Poe and uh, Gaston Leroux, who wrote Phantom of the Opera. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there, there's a through line of, like, gothicness that... Uh, has its apogee, I believe, in in the 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 great universal what you describe as the horror cycle,
2: right? And they've been uh, German Expressionism has been so incorporated into our film language, we don't notice it as much be- because it's still being used in horror and uh, fantasy movies today. Cough, cough. But
0: Tim Burton, cough, cough.
2: Exactly so when we're looking at at these early universal movies we have to look at it in the context of this is the first time american audiences have had a chance to see this
0: yeah and this is the first example of the legendary suite of horror monsters the american style of creating so many iconographic characters um That almost feel like they had their own world. Of course, there are many crossovers, but then you felt a universal side, right, Jeff? About like a style of these monsters and their environments. There's definitely
1: something about the universal horror movies that is different than the films that also fall into the horror genre that were released by RKO or or MGM. You know, I think of uh, an iconic RKO film like Cat People. Mm-hmm. or I Walked With a Zombie, or... Uh, at M- the M- Val
2: Lewton cycle. Yeah,
1: yeah. At MGM, they had uh, uh, Mark of the Vampire and uh, other, other films that fell into the horror genre, but there's something specific about the Universal films that uh, became iconic uh, after the fact. What I find really fascinating about what you were just describing, Al, is that it, it, w- it wasn't a premeditated decision to create an interlinked Universe. What happened is that they took a huge gamble uh, with horror movies, and for one reason or another, they struck a chord with the American public. And first Dracula, then Frankenstein, and then the Mummy. They made Universal Studios basically. They were huge box office successes, and uh, it was the first time I, that that. That kind of like subgenre beca- had mass appeal.
2: Well, it was the height nice. of the, it was nice. the height of the depression. Yes, so people were absolutely looking for escapism, and probably the other kind of movies that were making the most money during this period were musicals, musicals. and comedies. Yeah, and so even though now we're talking about being scared. It's still escapism. It still is something, you know, going back to uh, yes. the, this gothic period of monsters that we know don't exist. It must have been comforting at, at that time. And frankly, is still comforting to those of us who enjoy r- going back to these films. <laughs>
0: MGM w- at the time, that studio was known for doing this kind of escapism in terms of doing lavish musicals that also were known to have very these very high production values yes and i'm looking at like what the universal monster series and don't you notice like there's a production sheen to it like val luton and the jacques tournier for cat people he was no slouch when it comes to cinematography no yeah that, that's in a mood. film
1: noir horror
0: movie that's mm-hmm. right well, most assuredly. but like the best noirs at least for me I feel a little weird when I see the cat people. When I when I see it's unnerving. The yeah, that's right. It's unnerving. But but I think Brad, you're totally onto something about how like the Universal Monster experience does have weird, strange things. But it's so much more accessible. It's fun. It's it's a great, entertaining time. It has moments of humor to it, and it it has this kind of moment that. People have with horror movies today, I think,
2: but just in the sense that, like, oh, you're not supposed to take it seriously. We should also just mention that while we watch, as we watch universal horror films, we have a particular reaction because of how long ago they were made, and the kind of movies that have come out in the meantime. So we have a lot of strong reactions to these films, but at least for me, I, I don't think one of them is to actually be scared in the sense that one might be at, uh, at a more modern-style horror film. But to people at the time who had seen nothing like this, uh, it, it does need to be emphasized that these were legit frightening films.
1: You know? Well, that that brings up an interesting point that I, I I think you know these universal films in general and Frankenstein and its uh, superlative sequel, uh, what they have in spades is that they they work as a fun thoughtless fantasy about monsters and being on the loose and stuff. But at the same time, the, there's there's a literary aspect to them. Dracula based on the Bram Stoker novel, Frankenstein based on the Mary Shelley novel, The Invisible Man based on the H.G. Wells novel. These all come from pedigrees, literary pedigrees, and they're they're talking about kind of pretty large subjects. Frankenstein is about having power over life and death. It. It's interesting. It's been read as a feminist critique of m- males' envy of women being able to give birth. Hmm. Uh, so uh, that was Mary Shelley's kind of way of, of uh, doing that. That, that, might have, that might be one of those that's theories that's, that's laid over something uh, mm-hmm. after the fact. But what's interesting about Frankenstein as, as a kind of um, philosophical point of view is this idea of animating the dead. Of bringing, uh, which is basically about eternal life, and that's uh, a particularly a generation that just went through World War One, where millions and millions of men were killed in a brand new indiscriminate manner by the new technology of mustard gas and machine guns and things that were in that war that weren't in previous wars. There's a a, a, an aspect of bringing life back that I think kind of comes out of of the experience of having gone through hmm. uh, uh, World War One. I. I, I, I think that colors the film. But what's great about it is that it also <laughs> works as a monster movie because Boris Karloff is, you know, very menacing, and
2: that makeup is really unique it, it it's it's iconic well we should give a special shout out to jack pierce who did the makeup for uh, all the universal monsters of the first cycle is and, and 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 frankenstein is, is i don't think anyone can doubt his masterpiece the uh the iconic look of the monster uh has become First of all, synonymous with the character, uh, even though there have been dozens of other interpretations. It's even replaced uh, the book as how we think of the character. And it's just one of the most iconic uh, visuals of the 20th century.
0: He makes a great appearance for uh, in a really fun technique. I think Will—I don't know if whale patented it, but— It's something that shows up in a couple of his other films. It's definitely a signature. Right. And the the particular shot I'm talking about is first you have the monster's back to us. Mm -hmm. And then he slowly turns. And then there's three cuts, each one of which is a little closer. But each one is a little different. The monster's a little, little differently. He has a different expression. And the effect is to just disjoint us in the audience to make things. Something's not quite right in addition to one so you finally get a good view of the guy, you know?
2: The other thing that assists with that scene and and other scenes is that there is no score. Aside from some music over the opening credits, uh, Frankenstein has no music. So when you see this uh, scene that you described in silence, it's especially jarring. Definitely. And I think attention must be paid to the
1: star-making performance of Boris Karloff, um, who uh, uh, does an extraordinary job with a character
0: who's basically mute. After the monstrous impression he's made, well done. He, is, um, <laughs> he is someone whose name you want to know. But in fact, his presence was made such a strong effect that I, in subsequent films, he was dubbed... Karloff, <laughs> like Madonna, <laughs> but or wh- Beyonce, or Zappa, he just became a one word moniker. What, what's interesting about Frankenstein's
1: monster as a icon of horror is that he's he, he's he's completely innocent uh, of his monstrosity, as opposed to Dracula, who's more right. um, gleefully evil about you know sucking blood and staying undead.
0: Yeah, I am very curious as to what how people thought about it when you, they first saw it out there in the 30s. Because when I see the film today, I have nothing but sympathy for the monster. Yeah. He, he does not literally know any any better for the consequences of, of his actions. And I find Karloff not only imbues him with such a level of sympathy... But he's also kind of the best actor in the movie.
1: <laughs> well, okay, that that may be, but I don't think Frankenstein would be what it is without the uh, magnificent maniacal presence of Colin Clive. And uh, whether or not Mr. Clive has, you know, a, a specific range, his tortured performance is so raw. And so I believe honest that that I find him to be completely magnetic whenever he's on screen
2: yes he he's fascinating because he's going so big so often uh obviously the the it's a alive it's, alive, it's alive is is the most extreme part but but there's also a moment when uh he first confronts the the monster yes and and rejects him which which really leads the monster onto his tragic uh path and it, it, it's really interesting to see uh this version of dr frankenstein really no longer has any interest in what he's been pursuing once he sees the result he is so utterly horrified yes yeah yeah and th- there there's
1: There's an intensity to his performance that that fits so perfectly in with the character that um,
0: I can't picture the film without him. And it's also interesting, Jeff, that you termed it like a magnetic performance of his because I kind of think one of the things that the movie is trying to do is also gets the atmosphere of the time where science was advancing dramatically. And I think one of the things that still resonates is that ironically all the resonance and electricity generating equipment, all the Mm -hmm. mechanics of bringing this monster to life like that's still through the decades that's just this wonderful details of like arc lights of electricity bouncing across these devices and, and dials moving and fluids pumping and it seems just like that it's and, literally overdosing on science itself you know well
1: yeah and the level of design that goes into uh Dr Frankenstein's you know iconic instruments and you know the tesla coils and all of the 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 the, the, the dials and switches and uh, all of those aspects were, were so lovingly designed by the, uh, the art department uh, that um, the level of detail is is extraordinary. And I do believe that that's a conscious choice, Al, to, to showcase this aspect of science melding with technology that Frankenstein explores as one of its
2: themes i believe because it, it contrasts with the entire idea of uh him playing god of uh, and there's a there's a line of dialogue where he compares himself to god which actually was probably the most controversial element of the film at the it's time. very
1: interesting to note that uh when he says now i know what it feels like to be god that when frankenstein was re-released that that film uh, that that line was was edited out it was demanded to be edited right.
2: out. It was strong stuff, but the the contrast of this idea to the what the the visuals of the science the electricity really kind of brings all these obsessions of early twentieth century thought together in a way that can only be brought together on film when I look at all those dials all those gigantic balls that are bouncing electricity between
0: them you know what comes to mind as a comparison piece that people could look at for frankenstein alien hmm. expressionism's german expressionism is an attempt to like get how people feel and make the film look how people feel about things not how they not necessarily to depict some sort of objective reality and that's kind of what i think Frankenstein's doing is kind of what Alien is doing. It's showing people's ambivalence towards what technology can bring to them in just the expressiveness of how much different crazy scientific concepts are being thrown at you and to what purpose, you know. When and Whale does this really nicely by having uh the environment be this um former tower and make it so vertical. Like, what does it mean to have Frankenstein's monster's body being raised up during a lightning storm, which is, uh, of course, God's electrical um, experiment, right? Mm-hmm. After exactly, all. Exactly,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting as well to point out that um, originally, as in the novel, uh, Dr. Frankenstein is killed by the monster in the finale of the film, but. Universal had a preview screening in which the audience was horrified that he never got to marry his Mm. beautiful bride, Elizabeth, (laughs) that he died in the end. They demanded, they said the film sucked as a result of it. Mm
2: -hmm. So
1: Universal, being fearful of audience reaction, basically tagged on and it's the last scene of the film and it feels tagged on. It contradicts at literally everything that came before, including
0: it. how he gets injured by getting a business end of a windmill blade, <laughs> he, he falls off a windmill. That's, that's yeah.
2: rough to that's rough to survive. Yeah. <laughs> uh, wh- wh- while we're talking about the ending, we, we should Tell mention me kind it. of the uh, the aspect of the mob and how right? the uh, Very peasants important. with uh, pitchfork imagery is uh, for the first time I'm aware of really utilized to its extreme it's just another kind of primal thing happening it's it's not enough that they've already uh the the film has already confounded our expectations as far as who the monster is versus with dr frankenstein and the and the monster but now we even have the townspeople who we would think we'd be sympathizing with uh filmed in ways in which they're the threat. Yeah. People
0: who like look at Frankenstein today, expecting like a nonstop ratcheting of tension will be pretty weirded out, I think, by the fact that in the middle section, there's a whole ten-minute deal of just showing the local uh, countryside engaged in a wonderful dance festival. There's mm-hmm. all this dancing and singing and murder well, that, that, that goes that's, that's, on that's, and on and on until the um, father brings the body of his uh, dead, dead daughter into town. And I will say,
1: the shot of him bringing his child's dead corpse into the middle of this revelry mm-hmm. is... A striking image eighty years later i would not I would say that it's an aspect of the film that touches on a kind of eternal horror right there right, sure. and it
0: seems to be a fuel for all those pitchforks and yeah it, it,
1: it leads to the hysteria
2: yeah definitely. right it, and, and, and it also it's interesting though, because logically there's no way for him to know that that his child was murdered. And he comes in says, That is a that. small little plot hole. <laughs> <all>. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> That's right. It reminds me of an astounding film by Fritz Lang called M.
1: Wonderful a, film.
0: Yeah. Mm. And it's about a serial killer of children. And despite the fact that he is a despicable person and shown as such, the th- part of the plot of the movie involves like the mob and the underworld putting their own sort of shadow trial to abduct this guy and judge him and the film goes right down the middle going against the evil of an individual versus the versus the very dangers of ma of mob uh, activity definitely and
1: uh it should also be pointed out that m came out in 1931 the same year as yeah. Frankenstein, mm-hmm. uh, uh, although you know the circumstances of uh, Lang being in Germany while the Nazis were uh, coming into power uh, in the years sure. leading up to to their takeover of the government uh, were, were very different than than uh, James Whale in Hollywood right. in 1931, despite you know the great the Great Depression uh, going on. But uh, the, the the films share a lot in common in, mm-hmm. in their in their th- Thematic elements Yeah
0: Fritz Lang was obviously No stranger for like how, Showing how
2: crowds Can get out of control Because he did the Seminal science fiction work Of the Metropolis Metropolis That's Metropolis, right Which was another Influence on Frankenstein Most because, assuredly Because uh, The scene in which uh, The robot woman Is created In Metropolis Is Not exactly But uh, Somewhat echoed It's a template In that, in, uh, in the In the uh, It's alive scene uh, In Frankenstein
0: Mhm: Yeah, through those films of Lang's and then you and Frankenstein, you see, I think, two sides of a particular mirror image of this level of ambiguity towards a crowd of people who, while their cause might be righteous, it's a little out of control, a little I, I, too and- enthusiastic in how they go and all amass in pursuit.
1: I would say the the flip side of that, Al, is that there's a a sensibility of exploring the outsider's perspective. Uh, uh, Someone who's uh, on the fringes of society, someone who's outside of the mob, a kind of empathy to this person who's outside of the status quo that I believe uh, is, is a conscious artistic choice Of James Whale. Right,
2: because it's not the last time we're going to see that theme uh, present itself in Whale. Correct, yes.
0: But before James Whale gets back into the monster world, he gets into a romantic drama with his film Impatient Maiden in 1932. I have to confess, I didn't get a chance to see the film, but Jeff, you had a
1: chance to? Yeah, I did. I I got a chance to see it. Um, The Impatient Maiden is a an excellent textbook definition of a pre-code romantic comedy drama. It stars the lead of Waterloo Bridge and Frankenstein, uh, the lovely and talented Mae Clark, as the titular Impatient Maiden. It's a very contemporary film in in that it's about young people in 1932 Los Angeles. So there's lots of... References to a kind of frank sexuality that is surprising but characteristic of these pre-code films. Um, The original title of the film was The Impatient Virgin. They were not allowed to go that far. But the basic plot line is May Clark is dating a young upstanding fella who is entering pre-med he's going to be a doctor but he's still in that stage where he's struggling for bills and in the depression this was a pretty huge deal Uh, so she's waiting for him to pop the question he doesn't he wants to wait until he actually becomes a doctor and he has money and he can provide for her she's a little impatient not because she necessarily wants a husband to take care of her but frankly and it's discussed openly because she's horny and and she <laughs> she she wants her honeymoon night the film has some whale touches there's uh uh <laughs> there, there there's a there's a lot of kind of slapstick comedy thrown into this kind of sex comedy may clark gets involved with her boss Their relationship becomes more than Mm. boss-secretary. She has to choose between the young doctor and the older man. She chooses the older man, surprisingly, and uh, um, eventually sees the error of her ways when he turns out to be a cad and goes back to the doctor. But what I found most interesting about the film is that in the course of this rather clockwork, romantic drama, it explores these kind of issues that really wouldn't come back until the 1970s at the earliest. So many films are from the male perspective. And um, I think uh, the fact that that this film comes at the, the woman's perspective, that she's the protagonist, It's definitely characteristic of the pre-code era that it explores these avenues. I found it interesting to explore them with it. I would say in the scheme of James Whale's film career, The Impatient Maiden is a minor data point on it.
0: Mm -hmm. It's interesting that he would make that as a sense that he is interested in other films aside from horror. Like His attitudes towards Frankenstein will bear some... Interesting color to his subsequent horror films, but he does return back to horror in his next film, The Old Dark House, in
2: 1932.
1: As a crowd. There's always something happening, and
0: it's usually It's a story about some wayward travelers lost in the woods during a horrible rainstorm, and they come across the titular old dark house, which is populated by a very strange family. So what family secrets were they uncover as they try to spend the night through the rainstorm there?
2: This film is just a blast because it gives Whale a chance to use uh, in addition to To what he's so successfully conveyed in Frankenstein, uh, a a couple other secret weapons of his that he'll be able to deploy again and again, first of which is humor. Now, there was some humor in Frankenstein, but the old dark house is out and out hysterical. And I think that's a result of his other secret weapon, which is how lovingly he casts his supporting characters. This is like a convention of great character actors. Yeah, and the the
1: film is kind of just a, a, a loving uh, way to... Showcase all. Each character is given a, a kind of moment to shine in the old dark house. And what's so delightful about it is that, as a storyline, it's all prologue. It, it it kind of leads you down this path, but but there's no resolution. It it brings in all of this interesting detail about this dark past of this family and many secrets even going back generations and then it just ends basically <laughs> it, it it's definitely an exploration of these amazing characters and uh, a a kind of um uh just delightful enjoyment of watching
2: them interact right. and we should go through who, who's in this because uh, our, our two uh, leads who are kind of the most conventional are uh, Raymond Massey and uh, Gloria Stewart uh, of Titanic fame yes. as uh, the main couple. But surrounding them is uh, are just all these scene, uh, scene stealers. Melvin Douglas is their friend. And he is uh, constantly uh, has a sarcastic witticism in in response to everything uh, going on. Like when Boris He's Karloff, like, um, uh, op- when Boris Karloff in full monster regalia, a different kind of monster, opens the door and just grunts at them, he says, right. uh, Well, even Welsh shouldn't be spoken that way. Yeah, no,
1: th- there's a <laughs> delightful, sardonic sense of humor that pervades the entire film.
0: He, uh, but, and. And Melvin Douglas to me is like, he's like Bill Murray with 15 to 20% of the charisma. But that attitude of just being so flippant upon wherever situation you're at and just always having a a crazy witticism to say at the ready is a great way of looking at the film's attitude, which is to put on a show. It is a a house... Of sideshows <laughs> every room and every floor has some different weird effect. sometimes from the environment and sometimes from the characters themselves
1: and you, not- you have this kind of you know dark and rainy night and a collection of supposed strangers being forced into a a dark place and it it sort of has a setup that leads you to believe that maybe it's going to be an Agatha Christie-like murder mystery. Maybe everyone has some mm-hmm. dark secret in their past. But actually, it's just kind of about this very strange family and how they kind of drive each other crazy in the course of the night. They they drive each other to the acts of violence that, that occur. Uh, very awkward dinner party, for right. one thing.
2: It's a motley crew. And actually, this reminded me of... The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, in, tortle, in a few tortle. ways, because I, I, when you look at uh, you know not just Leatherface, who who you might uh, who might correspond with Karloff's character here, but the whole family is just in, uh, up up and including to the uh, f- the grandfather who's played by a woman with a beard, is just this collection. of of insane grotesqueries each one outdoing the other and of course one of the most insane is uh, Ernest Thessinger who uh, is not for the last time going to steal a lot of scenes in this film yeah
1: yeah he he um, has a theatrical quality that is is unmatched but matches perfectly with the material his character is like a raw wire. He's just constantly at at a at a level of hysteria or near hysteria. Mm-hmm. That yep. at at the dinner party that you mentioned, Al, he he says the same line four different times. Have a potato <laughs> and it's so malevolent <laughs> that it just makes you laugh with delight because it, he's saying these three innocent words, yeah. but with such Dripping acidity that... Right. Uh, which is his trademark. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, yeah. it's delightful. Film. If you see the
0: film like today, it's just a soup of raw material from which so many films have gone and drawn from. Like what Brad, like what you said on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is obviously owes a big debt of the family of horrible, horrible secrets, including an incredibly ancient uh, patriarch, or is he? Also, it is... Every film that you guys have seen in terms of people lost in the woods and everyone is like a certain type, and but there's a particular menace and they all the types all bounce up against each other in their attempts to deal with things this is kind of like the breakfast club in reverse of a horror <laughs> film to me whereas the breakfast club obviously refined things to just literally just be this is the type this is the type here I literally think you're seeing patient zero you're seeing the origin story of these types Melvin Douglas is clearly like the Seth Green character from Scream the person who is above it all and then going out and descri- and, and commenting on the action but and- Fessinger is the guy who is the opposite because he embodies the weirdness. Every part of his body and his frame and the way he's filmed is as twisted, ironically considering how straight and angular he is, but is as warped as someone who would have lived in that environment. He's like the signpost warning people to get away just by looking at him even before you, even despite from Karloff who does fine, but he's not nearly as weird to me as, as what Fessinger's doing.
1: Yeah, I think um, it's interesting to point out that the Melvin Douglas character has uh, a, a, a monologue where he talks about his experience in the war, and I think that is one of the many through lines that connects Whale's interest in this story, because mm-hmm. it should be pointed out this is based on a, a novel by J.B. J. Priestley, who... Um, uh so so Whale was aware of this material and the fact that he chose this to be the the next film after Impatient Maiden, uh is is a testament to his returning to this theme of
0: the how the war affected the men who survived it. Mm-hmm. Right. Look at like um, what he does by making that speech. The fact that that's included in the movie, mm-hmm. and I want to put a point of comparison is to, to Tarantino's Jackie Brown. When Jackie Brown says, "Hey, I'm just an old, an older lady in this profession that's going nowhere," compared to these horrors, the horrors done by the genre plot, don't affect me that much. I think you're working on the same thing here. Yeah. Right. And it also ties to another Tarantino thing, another Tarantino. Pleasure is the all the different characters in Reservoir Dogs. You know, you have all, once again, you have all these great character actors, and but they're all doing a different kind of sensibility. Mm-hmm. The way Mr. Pink behaves is totally different how Mr. Blonde behaves. And the old Dark House is like the ultimate example of that.
2: And we've got... One more to come, and and he might be the scene stealer of them all, is Charles Lawton shows up in the middle of this film uh, sporting a uh, Yorkshire accent and... He's just, hilarious. Just wonderful. Uh, Charles Lawton is, is one of these actors who I could watch in anything. So you, you you almost forget by the time he shows up that he was even expected in the cast. But he just adds a whole other X element to this uh crazy gathering. He is the one,
0: the prototype almost of the buffoonish. Comic relief person who gets his the stuck up guy who gets his comeuppance that has pervaded so many horror movies since then. And yet, there's a, an an empathy to how he's portrayed.
1: He's not simply, you know, the the, the Baxter, the the mm-hmm. the one that the, the the leading lady leaves for her leading man.
0: So that does happen. <laughs> uh, uh,
1: yes, but 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 he is. Given a, a certain kind of dignity that other examples of that type are not given, and, and complexity, I, I, I think there's a certain empathy to his point of view that's given.
0: It comes a lot from his presence. From Definitely. Lawton. Yeah. Lawton's presence is so much bigger than so many of the other erstwhile you know, heroes and, and main characters of the film. One of the charms of the film is that there are while there are tropes that you will recognize because of the influence of this very movie there's also cases where the rug is keeps pulling out from under you and there's just weird situations that you just are not expecting and weird directions that it goes like for example, Carlos' performance of like the second most fearsome monster in his ever portrayal of a butler, albeit some sort of caveman butler. <laughs> He's described repeatedly as a savage and mm-hmm. and um and a drunkard. And
1: a drunkard. <laughs> and you know, uh there's um uh a subtext of, of sexual violence that he is gonna go after young Gloria Stewart and, and rape her, basically. Yeah because he's drunk, and when he attacks her, that is definitely what's being implied. Yeah,
2: and,
0: yeah. But in, in in the midst of that, you just get uh, this dinner scene where it's like, oh, have a potato. Have a potato. And and there is one moment where Thessinger um, is uh, going up, uh, helping someone go upstairs to get a lamp, and he just basically does the uh, Whitman Mayo from Sanford and Son by going, you know, I'm I'm not going up there. <laughs> and then... Uh when a menace appears, there's a really wonderful shot where out of the darkness of his door, he just appears out of darkness going in effect told ya, and then just disappears by walking backwards back
2: into the <laughs> darkness.
1: <laughs> there's an eccentricity that, that's on on display that uh adds uh just levels of characterization that, that make it rise above you know, uh, uh, kind of by the numbers.
0: Oh, it's not by the numbers. Uh, I don't know. If, uh, I wouldn't go put it as rise above. Just by ver- It's a unique take on this stuff. A a collection. It's also maybe the progenitor of the kind of stuff trafficked by the Addams Family. A collection of random grotesqueries who are, um, and the way that would be quote unquote normal people deal with the environment, and the way they deal with them
2: is is considerably different for each person. Right, because there's nothing supernatural going on here. It's just a very, very bizarre family. It's kind
1: of it's kind of a a, a twist on Poe's Fall of the House of Usher. There's mm,
2: uh, nice. there, there's
1: a little implied incestual angle. There's a little mm-hmm. implied. You know, uh, murder angle. There's there's a just a kind of deviancy. But what's interesting about the film is that it's all about its mood. It, it's it's all about mood. There's no, even though there, there there's violence and and you know a few characters or maybe just one character dies in the end. Is it just Saul
2: who dies? It, it, it is. Saul is the, uh, the son that is apparently so crazy that the rest of the family thinks he's too crazy and they and keep him locked him behind in locked. the cellar. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And,
0: and his appearance, which I don't want to spoil, is very, very fun. And where the movie takes his character and how people act with him is also really interesting. Because yeah. it's, I think they undercut the rug on you two or three times when you see what Saul ends up doing
1: <laughs> it's really interesting how throughout the film whale manages to blend kind of this the sardonic humor with the kind of you know scary mood i mean it, it it's it, it tre- the film treads a, a a fine line and sometimes it it tips over into just being straight out comedically funny mm-hmm. and sometimes it's just kind of uh, particularly when Saul is 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 there, it, it's really just a, a straight-ahead horror movie about a crazy person. You know, the, the, there's there's danger and violence, uh, mm-hmm. uh, but it it's it's really nice how it 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 kind of rides that that line mm-hmm. uh, of of comedy yep. and and it's, darkness.
2: And it again is a sets, progenitor- sorry, and again sets the template for uh, what horror movies would become, which is. This, which often has this element of humor, it is such a progenitor of Evil Dead
0: too.
1: <laughs> Most assuredly,
0: that l- case of being fifty percent humor at a horrific situation and fifty percent being straight up horrified, I think was honed to a very fine edge in 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 Sam Raimi's movie. Um, here, I think it's a little more slapdash. Some things get really, really broad. Some things just get very horrific. My my favorite part of the movie is actually a oh, not even related to the horror at all, but just a real fun undercutting th- uh, situation where Melvin Douglas has taken um, Charles Lawton's girlfriend and spirited her away in the safety of a of a stable where they or a car is located and there's this whole running gag about like how her shoes just keep getting wet and and this because a torrential downpour it has been pouring down the whole time and uh, melvin douglas and and this lady have a conversation in the car and then decide to go back to the house where douglas says no you can't go in these wet shoes i will go and carry you back and then they show him walking from the stable's uh, to the house and drops her two or three times. <laughs> 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 Mr. Gallant Hero is like, what, just a
1: chump after all. <laughs> I'm I'm so glad that they included that shot. It, it's, it's a really delightful idiosyncratic touch yeah. that I think a lesser director
0: would have edited out. He's, well, he's working on, yeah, I think he's working on the example of having Melvin Douglas be the action hero. It's appreciating the irony. So, Wales now done a horror movie of two types, of a person and a horror of a place. He's done melodrama. He's done war films. And with his next movie, he goes in yet another genre, the kind of courtroom drama.
1: The, the very interesting Kiss Before the Mirror is uh, a film that stars Frank Morgan, who six years later would be The Wizard of Oz, But in in this film, he plays a uh, prosecuting attorney who's famous for sending killers to the electric chair. He's very successful at his job. And what happens at the beginning of the film is a mild-mannered, bookwormy college professor murders his two-timing wife who's having a passionate affair with a local Lothario. The professor murders them both and is uh, prosecuted by this uh, uh, kind of gung-ho man played by Frank Morgan. What happens in the course of the film is as he explores why this mild-mannered professor would be driven mad by jealousy, um, his own wife it is revealed is having an affair behind his back and he finds himself in the exact same place that the mild-mannered professor was in. And as a result, he can't prosecute him, so he decides to ask that he be given clemency and be given uh, an innocent verdict by reason of temporary insanity. What's interesting about the film is that it, it explores this kind of psychological area and at the same time it is kind of frighteningly misogynistic mm-hmm. in in that it's okay to murder your wife if she two
2: times you like the slut she is so the uh feminine point of view that we've been lauding that in has earlier been, yeah. films is not quite present here. it's not
1: quite present here no no it, um i was uh surprised at the kind of hatred or fear of female sexuality that's that's shown in the film
0: like um yeah by way of comparison locking your bride to be in the uh in her own room on the wedding night on the wedding day where she's what, acting hysterical yeah frankenstein to menace, frankenstein's monster to menace her Oh, that seems pretty mild, actually.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. Um, I, I, I don't, I don't want to give Kiss Before the Mirror, you know, uh, uh, too little credit. It, 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 the film looks gorgeous. It is shot beautifully. Uh, I want to point out the director of photography was a German expressionist, Karl Freund, who, oh, who
2: also directed The Mummy.
1: Who directed The Mummy uh, for Universal? He was also the cinematographer for Todd Browning's Dracula. The uh, in 31 the film has a, a beautiful noirish palette that uh, there's a very interesting flashback where we see the murder of the professor's wife from the professor's point of view and it's almost completely ex- an expressionistic montage There, there's a lot of dutch angles that come back later on uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, dark, surreal lighting used. Uh, the, there's some intricate camera work being done that you know, but I would have to say that the 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 overall kind of misogynistic theme m- makes makes the film un unpalatable to a modern audience.
0: Mm. Think about uh, one of the things that we've found really interesting over the course of the different directors club episodes we've done and when you look over a a person's films a lot of cases the film that they make is some sort of reaction to the film they previously made or a counterweight to it think about how crazy and out of control the old dark house is how the kind of wonderful merriment it has in embracing that kind of level of lack of control and your reaction to that is to make the most strident <laughs> example of control both in the law sense and in the possessive males uh like that's sense. a really interesting point yeah you no know? yeah like it, it, i don't know if it's something where he was he was obviously not engaging in that part of whale's interests in the uh, uh, in the old dark house and now he engages it, but he engages it too much. It's super interesting that the levity that that Whale has inserted in, in even like his uh, darker, um, even in his darker films, like you can argue in Waterloo Bridge, has some funny comedic moments. It does. The fact that it's lacking is really interesting.
1: Yeah, and and another thing that's that's really interesting thinking about Whale's career is that he hated the fact that his. Most successful and and best remembered films were his horror films, e- even though his horror films got the most attention. He was almost embarrassed by that, and what's interesting looking at them is that despite his embarrassment, his style works best in in that right in that genre. It's I a think. great irony. Yeah,
0: the thing sometimes the thing you're good at and the thing you want is not at all the same thing
2: and not just good at but helped invent. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, he
1: he followed up this kind of earnest drama about, you know, men and their wives with uh, another foray into literary horror. Uh, The Invisible Man was his next film. the answer she's don't no call me no one she's the way the sailing beautiful she's mine for the one and I lost her heavy taken by temptation as it runs but you don't bother me but
0: I'm not there I'm gone and this was a film about um Dr. Jeffers. And Dr. Jeffers has discovered a drug called monocaine. If symptoms persist for four hours, then will go see your doctor because you know he can't see you.
1: In- Invisible Man is really interesting. It, it, I think it has the highest ratio of comedy to horror. I think it also may have the highest Body count, in terms of the victims mm-hmm. of the the monster, as it were, mm-hmm. uh, it is also uh, groundbreaking in its use of uh, technology I don 't know exactly what they did I believe it 's a precursor of the green screen that they invented for this film
2: that 's right what they would do for the uh, partial invisible effects when you see the invisible man just in his shirt or taking his bandages off are done by filming each shot, uh, first filming the background, then filming uh, the action of uh, the actor, and the background is basically placed onto the area uh, that's meant to be invisible. At the time, even now, the invisible effects uh absolutely are astonishing <laughs> yeah
1: and uh, uh uh as with uh wales best films it the every character is played by a uh a lovely british character actor working you know at, at the at the peak of their at their of their powers e- each character from the police constable to the the various townspeople, uh, are 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 given a, a certain shading and and a, a a sense of of character that pervades the film. That and constable none, is yeah. just hilarious; <laughs>
0: like he is um, played by an actor named E. E. Clive. Right, E. E. Clive, um, who comes at- up in. Film after film <laughs> that
1: James Whale directed. Uh,
0: uh, that's right. He is a very willowy figure, let's put it that way, um, uh, with a very unconventional, particular kind of look. Well, also to be... Dominated
2: by his mustache or lack thereof.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. He's, he's the British or Welsh version of the dad from Alf is his closest to physical resemblance, but as the constable in the invisible man he is this wonderfully amusing take on the standard thing that you hear uh, when a british policeman busts in on a crime scene what's what is this then but what it it has to face is a person who can't be seen and the ways he described like what am I going to do? Handcuff a shirt. (laughs) And his reactions are, uh, wonderfully practical for the, uh, uh, obscenely absurd things that he is witnessing.
1: Yeah. And I think the invisible man also has many parallels with Frankenstein. It, it's both, they're both about kind of science reaching beyond what it maybe shouldn't reach towards. Uh, it's about a, uh, 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 a man of learning who loses the kind of way uh, uh, throughout through his explorations. With monocane, though, there's also this interesting kind of aspect of of kind of a drug addiction metaphor that I think H.G. Wells was weaving in that 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 is kind of explored. Uh, uh, but also this sense of um, of of evil inherent, within mankind to to borrow a phrase from the mm -hmm. shadow
2: of all the universal horror movies. I find this the most disturbing. Hmm. And I think one reason for that is because even though there is a, a, a science fiction element of invisibility going on here, Claude Rains is actually embodying a much more modern prototype of a monster, uh, which is the serial killer. You couldn't imagine, as Claude Rains is ranting and raving about world domination, about what he can do and how easily he could uh, he could kill people, uh, you could imagine him uh, uh, as anyone from Hannibal Lecter to John Doe. You, you know you're not going to run into Dracula. You know you're not going to run into the Frankenstein monster. But, hey, you might run into some crazy maniac that you can't see.
0: Brad, I think you've touched on something really, really special with that comparison of Reigns to the serial killer and the serial killer genre. How many manifestos have reflected those same kind of sensibilities? And Jeff, you pointed out how like, so many of Wales's films broach on the idea of freedom. Yeah. This and maybe Frankenstein – are a look of freedom, but not the freedom that comes from independence. It's the freedom that comes from abandon. The idea when you have some realization that there are no rules and that there are no borders that guide your behavior, what can a human being be willing to do? And the Invisible Man, the concept of the Invisible Man just harkens back to a connection that I like to make with one of the greatest films ever made, um, David Fincher's Zodiac. And one of the reasons I think that film is one of the greatest films ever made is because it makes the point about how it's the idea of the Zodiac that scares people. It's the idea of the Zodiac that ruins people's lives. And they ruin more lives and put more fear and more pain and on our society than the actual person who does the killings himself.
1: Well, the the, the the interesting thing to me also about The Invisible Man is that even more than the definition of a, a serial killer or a, even a mass murderer, the acts of terror that his character accomplishes and describes are basically terrorism. I mean, he's talking about He's talking about, you know, murdering the heads of government and, mm-hmm. and instill, instilling chaos in the world. You know, uh, he, he derails a train and, kill, you know, kills a hundred
0: people. He makes a very fascinating point about first you can kill big men and then you kill, gr- you kill great men or you kill little men just to know
2: they're equal. Which reminds me of, of another villain uh, in his love of chaos, uh, the Joker particularly as portrayed in The Dark Knight, echoed, I think, a little bit of Claude Rains. Mm -hmm. His very
0: lack of a physical presence is such a great echo of so many things, Mm -hmm. like the idea that there are no borders whatsoever, or rather, there are no boundaries whatsoever. And that kind of freedom, it shows the temptation of it and the, the... like kind the danger of it on its ex- wonderful existential level, and it ties in the, to your point, Brad, about the kind of paranoia that people would have, because you can you can see threats coming from Dracula, like you said, you can see Frankenstein's monster lumbering from a great distance, <laughs> oftentimes, but you don't know if the person next to you, or uh, is. Is a menace. You don't know when you have a conversation you think is in confidence that it's being overheard by the wrong person. Think of it in the context of how the medium of communication. To sorry, sorry, for guys for being all poindextery about it. But look at about how like film was just a, like had been a really young medium, and people were familiarizing themselves with radio, and so the idea of a presence. Like in fact, no coincidence that one of the big great. Like spooky things that people heard on the radio was the shadow, mm-hmm. someone who's could cloud men's minds to his actual physical being, right? So that was something that was people were getting used to. Maybe I would say people are still getting used to this concept, but you get this in filmic form of an enter, of a fun, entertaining movie in the Invisible Man. That's part of what I really enjoy about that. And what's really interesting is that it's
1: understood that the the, the drug makes him invisible and that there may be side effects of it, but It's interesting that—and I know that this is implicit in H.G. Wells' story. It's not something that Whale, you know, injected into it. But but the fact that he, you know, highlights it is interesting. That upon attaining the power of invisibility, Claude Rains immediately goes into, you know— Think of all the secrets you can learn. Think of all, you know, the money I can steal. Think of all the people I can murder and never get caught. Mm -hmm. What does it say about his... Soul that—that's where he goes. What
0: is the attitude he's saying about morality? Yes, like what people Mm -hmm. will do if they were one hundred percent assured they would not be able to get caught. Yeah, or
1: how 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 thin is the social contract? You know that because we see each other, that's preventing us from murdering and
0: stealing. To what you said, Jeff, about societal norms—that's another level of which I really enjoy this movie. Claude Rains is an inspired choice for this, I think, in Very. many ways. I think he does a really nice performance on here. He's wonderfully maniacal. And me, as not particularly a fan of Rains's usual demeanor of being like a kind of stuffy guy who is knowing all the angles but knows just the right syllable to say, I find it tremendous fun to see him break loose. And just go wild and start running around and, and, and be so enthusiastic about all the crazy things he would like because to do. Because he he's
2: naked as he's doing all this. <laughs> is, sure,
0: sure. But in, in the heart of that is also the fact that rains so often, and as part of the, his demeanor in general, and the very kind t- tone of his voice is he's a guy who has to keep himself in check and finds himself often at odds with, like, the people uh, he's around with because he has to maintain composure. It, it reminds me of a film by Nicholas Ray, which stars James Mason.
2: Bigger Than Life?
0: Oh, that's right, called mm-hmm. Bigger Than Life, about a guy who goes crazy. James Mason is an, a stuffy British guy who's trying to live... As a white bred American family, and I think the great undercurrent of that movie is that he just can't stand these people. He is way he is he feels he has a station so much higher than like uh, and so much better than these dregs that he has to find himself among. Right down to the point that like he's literally gets a football at the end of the movie, which he's ah oh! he reacts like a ironically like a vampire would to a bit of garlic, and. I find such an interesting to look at Claude Rains's performance in that context. Like, he treats those citizens with such disdain. Why don't you idiots leave me alone? Like, um, when he's he full of off, contempt for
1: everyone around him. Yes, us.
0: and like, but when he takes the bike, he just here have your bike back. <laughs> <laughs> he. It seems to be that finally he's let so much of it that was kept internal is finally able to let loose by him, ironically letting it all hang out.
2: So the other aspect of of this film that's interesting is not just uh, what Claude Rains is doing, but how the police and the town respond to it because it it, it creates uh, some very interesting drama is how do you capture, how do you stop an invisible man? And there are scenes of just very meticulous logic where they have to improvise you know standing hand in hand and uh and how are you going to get a particular character out of the invisible man's range invariably uh these fail but it's still a lot of fun to watch the characters thinking aloud on how exactly to respond to this threat
0: oh oh yeah i so agree with that you know people who are like J- cynically jaded by so many horror films about how like ca- a character does stupid thing after stupid thing to keep the threat <laughs> from looming over them. We'll find this a joy to just see people who are see a horrific situation that is beyond their understanding and them trying to use real human ingenuity to figure it out.
1: Yeah, and then there's a nice little irony in that it is uh, nature itself in the form of snowfall Mm -hmm. that is the undoing of this supernatural, invisible man. Uh, So while he could could become invisible, he couldn't hide from nature.
0: Also notable about how he emerges from a snowstorm.
1: Yes, very, yeah, nice. That, that's a nice uh, book ending. In,
0: in fact, I'm just even going to go, I'm going to go poetic for a little bit and just say, well, isn't that kind of what's cool about snow is that individually it's just kind of formless. It's just out there, part of the environment, but yet it can form snow drifts. And ultimately, like in by seeing his footprints can lead to his portrayal. So it has form and formlessness at the same time. Just a little cr- crazy highfalutin <laughs> idea that's floating around right now, and Invisible Man is one of these is a film that just inspires me to like think of these things in in fun ways, and I also want to add that it is so creative not just in the fact of how convincing the special effects but all the different uses of it you know the the kind of standard thing that people are familiar with with um invisible people in movies is that they are also become the clumsiest people on earth who are constantly upending uh, the things so that you as an audience member know where they're going but here it's done to great effect because he's messing up when he escapes from this tavern in he's messing things up but it's clear that it's because he doesn't like these people and wants to just really show them up. But time and time again, in a way, the kind of spirited exuberance of taking the special effects and seeing how you can work with it Reminds me of how like, Zemeckis took all the concept of an animated character in Roger Rabbit. It's like, what can we do? Can we have, let's make his impressions in the snow. Like, Let's make him like drag someone out by a scarf. <laughs> how he's able to like just go, not just open doors, but how other people react to being punched and throttled by him. It, there's, there's such an ever, ever-present sense of creativity going on in just u- taking a special effect and using it to the fullest, I find charming as all hell in this film.
1: I love the seamless blend of humor with tragedy and horror. I love Claude Rains' performance, uh, as uh, Al uh, adroitly pointed out. I, I love the the character work by the supporting players, including Una O'Connor as the uh, uh, the the wife of the tavern owner, who you know has to deal with Claude Rains and gets a lot of uh character work business to do uh she 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 brings a singular characterization to her role that she does i I really enjoy the film to this day so uh, i'm a big fan of the invisible man it's not my favorite whale for reasons that i'll 'll make clear when we get to the the one film that is my favorite
0: very well, but before we get to that one, we get to an intriguing film of whales that's actually in a weird way a kind of a combination because it happens both be a relationship drama and a courtroom film in his movie one more river in
1: 1934 me my thoughts are flowers true ocean storm may bury i have got to leave to find my
0: It's about Claire Coven, who, while on a boat voyage and keeping distance from her abusive husband, she strikes up a friendship with Frank Lawton, who who becomes enamored with her. And his attempts to reunite with her lead her to both like problems of a family and, it turns out, of a legal nature.
2: Right. So One More River, uh, plot-wise, deals with the concept of divorce from... A woman's point of view, mostly in the sense that it would be very difficult for uh, a woman to initiate a divorce during the period that this film is set. In a sense, she's trapped
1: because Mm -hmm. her husband is abusive, but she can't leave him because of the restrictions of society. And in a sense, she shares a kind of outsider status with a lot of the protagonists of Wales films. I would... Place one more river uh, 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 on a lower tier in terms of of uh, Wales' quality of work. There's a certain roteness to one more river. The melodrama feels flatter than, say, the melodrama in Waterloo Bridge. That that ha that has a certain kind of passion behind it.
2: I found um, a little bit of his spirit located. Uh, in two of the supporting characters who, in essence, for me, steal the film and make what, uh, what's interesting about it not the main plot line, but these very eccentric performances. Uh, the first one being by uh, an actress uh, who's known for her eccentricities, including how she's referred to, who is uh, Mrs. Patrick Campbell. Most famously,
1: she is who George Bernard Shaw wrote Eliza Doolittle in Pygmalion for.
2: Right. And, and she is this uh, older woman who has a sarcastic uh, upper class response to all that's uh, going around her. And in fact, this <laughs> every line of dialogues from her seems to be a treasure, especially this one where she says, uh, I wasn't sure if it was flatulence or the hand of God. <laughs> that, that, that's a, a very quotable line, I will admit. <laughs> And if uh, if Mrs. Campbell steals the first uh, half, E.E. E. Clive might steal the second as this uh, Inspector Clouseau-ish uh, <laughs> private detective who yeah. is uh, following our lead as she is uh, actually innocently dealing with the courtship of uh, what she considers her friend. This fellow is playing uh, so broad in the detective role, it kind of... I mean, in, in this case, it, it's more undermining because this <laughs> is supposed to be about the courtroom, about the marriage, uh, about all this. But it, in the scenes where this guy's trying on fake mustaches and hiding behind bushes, it becomes all about this goofy guy.
0: So true. Basically, imagine Spectre Clouseau
2: in the episode of Law and Order, and you're kind of getting the gist of how incognizant this guy is. We should also mention that Colin Clive is very menacing uh, as the abusive uh, husband. And... A very different mm-hmm. role from Henry Frankenstein.
1: I, I, I have to say, he's got a different kind of darkness
2: in this character. Right. It's more restrained. It's more realistic. It's
1: still a burning intensity. Oh, very much so. He, yes. he, he leaps off the screen. And uh, he's introduced, not unlike Frankenstein, with the patented James Whale three-cut close-up. Right, that's mm-hmm. right. when he enters. It's as if he's Frankenstein's monster
0: again. Frankenstein's id, as it turns out. I didn't really find his performance effective as a nuanced character. I, you can, but if you look at it as an expression of his possessive jealous and not really valuing his spouse except as something that he can abuse. He does deliver that feeling. Um, of course, when he brings it into a courtroom, his that very same menacing quality makes him phenomenally unconvincing as someone who can be a reputable part of a, a divorce proceeding. As for the trial itself, you can tell that Whale is trying to deuce give the details of the court procedure, and he really is effective at drawing out the most boring, formal measures of the court procedure, even to the extent that his panted tracking shot is used to just show the great distance it must take for a witness to walk in the gallery, walk through all the bewigged people as part of the jurisprudence, and get into the witness stand. He does this, like, multiple times to no real reason aside from getting his um, uh, tracking shot a workout.
1: I think it's an attempt to ratchet up the tension of what the individual is going to say on the witness stand. You know, he's, instead of cutting to them being in the witness box, he's he's ratcheting the tension by showing the the long walk.
0: The impression I get, Jeff, is that he's, He's just trying. <laughs> he's just trying to find something interesting of the material and he's just, and one way his camera moves, another is to put his buddy E. Clive in a succession of odd looking outfits and have him put some mirth to these proceedings. But the proceedings themselves are incredibly dry and they involve such a formal question of, well, what standing does a person have to contest a divorce in a, in a way that, may seem archaic to even people at the time, but compared to present day are so formal and so like ritualistic in an ancient manner that it's like steadfastly refuses to be engaging.
1: Well, I think it's interesting that um, there's a kind of parallel to the story of uh, Kiss Before the Mirror and even Impatient Maiden and Waterloo Bridge in that it's telling a a story from a female perspective Mm -hmm. and uh, uh, in a way that I think stands out for the vast majority of films. Certainly there are, you know, a lot of films that you can point to where they explore this from the female point of view, but it's unique that uh, uh, this kind of divorce aspect is, is explored from how it affects the woman. And I think the The sensibility comes through w- in Whale's direction.
2: This is also based on a very acclaimed book. As it turns out, the book uh, was so effective that British divorce laws were changed as a result of this story. Uh, mm. Because as, as the one thing the movie does show in in the, in the court proceedings is just. How ridiculously one-sided uh, all the rulings were in in favor of the husband. So there was some uh, some progress made as a result.
0: And that way, I'm. I guess it's really good for British jurisprudence, but I don't think it was as successful as making it entertaining or compelling as a drama.
1: Yeah, I would say that. From my opinion, the, the film has an interest. But I do not consider it to be necessarily a, a good or even a great film. Agreed. However, the film that Whale made after the this happens to be my absolute favorite of his filmography.
0: And it, it was not the sequel, yet one more river. <laughs> it was
1: a sequel, but not a sequel to that film.
0: Right. Um, and, and what an interesting multifaceted sequel it is because Whale returns – to his most famous and most successful pop, successful work at least financially with Bride of Frankenstein in
2: 1935 <laughs>
0: Sometimes get nowhere. And in this movie, having survived the first movie, <laughs> the Frankenstein's monster is, as he wanders loose on the countryside, He finds himself advancing in both, like, thoughts and feelings. And meanwhile, his creator meets with this very strange figure who suggests a way to take... His former experiments to an entirely new level. This is a film which takes Frankenstein and the concept of Frankenstein and his first film to a new level because I don't I find that it's not just one of the more successful sequels, but it's also a
2: kind of reboot and reevaluation. Well, everything is more what we had in the first movie was wonderful but everything that was wonderful there is ratcheted up we feel even more sympathy for karloff's monster especially as now he's given the power of speech the scenes of mayhem and evil that permeate the first movie are more so here and the comedy that was only hinted at is now at full blast making this one of the most entertaining films of the 30s and i agree with you jeff the uh highlight of the universal monster series yes
1: uh, uh not only is this my favorite james whale film but i will not hesitate in saying that i think the bride of frankenstein is one of the greatest films ever made i would say it's one of the best films, not just horror movies or universal horror movies or even James Whale movies, I would say The Bright of Frankenstein is a film that I could analyze cell by cell, <laughs> scene by scene, and find something brilliant, artistic, and surprising in every frame. It's just a masterpiece.
0: Oh, that's awesome. You say that. Um because I'm not a really big fan of the movie except Interesting. With one except with one particular detail. It's it is to me incredibly fascinating as the funhouse mirror look of Frankenstein because my impression of Wales when he made Bride of Frankenstein is we hinted at this earlier. He was very ambivalent about the kind of success that he got from horror films and i want to even say from frankenstein in particular and so he was very much called back and and pleaded to to make the bride of Frankenstein. oh yeah it's important to
1: point out that um from the moment frankenstein the 1931 original was a box office success whale was pressured to make a sequel they wanted to you know capitalize on its success they they needed to strike while the iron is hot he would he put them off for years and years he he said if you let me make this film then maybe i'll think about it eventually he got with his old friend rc sheriff who wrote journey's end to uh work on the script They incorporated ideas from the second half of Mary Shelley's novel, and they added their own kind of subversive vein of humor and darkness and eccentricity
2: uh, that makes this such a unique film experience. It's so wonderful to watch the evolution of the character, of the monster, going from confusion and isolation to having the agency here as he did not in the first one to reach out and realize that connections could be formed and then it's all the more tragic when we see these connections severed so you have this wonderful scene where the monster visits a blind hermit who is the first person in this entire series to be kind to the monster well the little girl the little girl yes but then that had an unhappy end too right and it, it,
1: uh, mm-hmm. it's a film about loneliness if you think about
0: it
2: very very much so yeah. and the entire concept of, of of a bride that can be created for a cre- for a creature like this is from the point of view of addressing loneliness this this beacon of hope and then when that hope is dashed it becomes even more tragic and there's even a kind of meta level uh going
1: on here in in the sense that the film is titled the bride of frankenstein ostensibly it's about the bride of frankenstein Putting aside the unique and novel notion of a female monster, which brings up all interesting sorts of Freudian and psychosexual implications, there's also the irony that the title monster doesn't show up until, you know, an hour and five minutes into the (laughs) the film. In the very, very last scene, she has no lines of her own. She's mute like Frankenstein is in the original, and she dies five minutes after she's
2: introduced. But thanks to Elsa Lanchester and Jack Pierce's amazing uh, makeup and, and wig work, this uh, this five-minute performance is indelible.
1: She also has a small cameo in a prologue in the beginning as Mary Shelley. She does an, uh, uh, a nice little uh, little bit there, and that's a really unique way of kind of reframing this sequel, bringing it back to its creation. It also adds a, a level of meta-ness to it, because instead of starting the story inside the Frankenstein story, we're taking a step back, and this is the people who created the Frankenstein story. Here's a story about stories. So it's really kind of interesting
2: the The prologue is really cool, I think, because it gives the film permission to go completely crazy, which it does. It goes in wild flashes of imagination, but be but I think it sets us up for this because it's not just a story being told to us, but we understand it's a story being told among three friends in an old dark house.
1: Yes. And
0: nice and nice.
1: Well done. And, and, and it's, um, it's a story that's explicitly pointed out in that prologue that it's a moral lesson about man's, you know, hubris in presuming to touch God by, by being a creator of life it shoves all that to the to the side and just revels in the insanity of the characters and instead of earnestly wrestling with these philosophical conundrums that it sets up it just basically like gives the finger to <laughs> to them all through the the twistedness of the performance of the characters uh Colin Clive's Frankenstein but more importantly Ernest Thesiger's True de force as Dr. Pretorius.
2: This character is just about one of the craziest performances I have ever seen.
1: Yeah, it, um, it's, it's amazing to contrast him, uh, Dr. Pretorius, and Ernest Thessinger with Edward Van Sloan and his... Professor in the original Frankenstein, because Edward van Sloan in the original Frankenstein he's he's more of the stereotypical gray haired elderly you know you've got to do this by the book, you know the old master who whose pupil has gone against him Ernest thesiger's Pretorius might be more crazy if not definitively more crazy
2: than Colin Clive's. Henry Frankenstein. But also so much funnier. This is the character where so much of the comedy originates from because... Every expression, every line delivery is done with such condescending mockery. Nothing bothers him he he is his first confrontation with uh with the monster, whereas uh Henry Frankenstein coward in fear uh pretorius uh listens to what he has to say and goes, "You're wise in your generation
1: he's wise because he ha what what does he say right before?" Vestager calls him wise.
2: Right. Hate, he he hates living. He says loves he hates dead. living and yeah. loves
1: death. Now that's that's a subversive thought yes. to put in a mainstream Hollywood entertainment. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that that Dr. Pretorius is the voice of these shocking ideas, and uh, the fact that he's given the previous hour and fifteen minutes to just delight in his existence and the the film delights in his insanity i think
2: well e- even in uh, a scene that seems extreme for this series in which we see that he's created a series of tiny little people in jars Ooh, he's puts in jars a queen and a king and, and, and a ballerina and, 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 yes. a mermaid all these uh, little little tiny people in jars which is like you're you're watching this and going, am i really seeing this are they really going there Yep, that's how I felt. (laughs) Yeah,
1: there's a strangeness and a delight in the macabre that is unique, Um, that just kind of resonates. You you, you see everyone's working at the top of their form. Also, an important thing to point out is that because of the success of Frankenstein, Whale had a huge budget. Everyone at Universal Studios was working to make The Bride of Frankenstein a big success. They they put a couple million dollars into it, which in 1935 money was a lot. The original Frankenstein, for example, had a very, very small budget. It was not considered to be, you know, a, a, a premiere offering from the studio. The fact that it was such a box office success took everyone by surprise. So the second time around, he had a lot more money. He had... You know, an art department, a cinematography department. Everyone working at the top of their form. The Franz Waxman score is one of the the best scores of the 1930s. I think it's got some really interesting uh, points all, all throughout it. The, the the film works on so many multiple levels. It's funny. It's it's a little horrifying. I don't think it's scary the way that you know. A, a modern horror film is, but it certainly touches on a lot of interesting points of view, and cinematically it 's it 's really interesting the The point near the end of the film when the bride is being created mm-hmm. I rewound my my dVD player and watched this scene about three times in a row because it 's about three minutes of pure montage without any dialogue. With some of the most like e- extraordinary cinematography, you would imagine a Hollywood studio releasing it. it it's so pure cinematic. Every th- th- there's there's cuts that go by in the blink of an eye. There's everything's at a Dutch angle. There's this kind of bizarre multiple close-up of Colin Clive's face as a um, arc light is blinking kind of uh, uh, like like a strobe effect it's it's an amazing work of cinematic art
2: there is one shot of Pretorius filmed in this bizarre shadow at this bizarre angle where he looks so completely demonic and inhuman, you're you you you're just in awe of how this shot even exists.
0: All right, guys. You guys seem to really, really like this film. I think... You're not while, a fan. <laughs> I do like some parts of this film, and one part of the film I find just really magnificent. But whereas we were talking earlier about the... The old dark house and how I kind of think Evil Dead Two takes those feelings of horror and humor and and polishes it to a very fine point. So I think while Old Dark House is earlier, Evil Dead does that line better. Um, Bride of Frankenstein is his army of darkness. <laughs> it all the scenes you're talking about maybe wild and have a lot of creativity but it's also clear that whale does not give less of a shit how things mesh together like those figures for Christ's sakes okay i'm going to admit my bias is that i you know i come from a background of always being really interested in science and the scientific processes. As you guys have heard from my opinions on The Invisible Man, I really like that idea of people like practically putting their intellect in. and And so I come from a background of, of backing up like Frankenstein's premise in buying the presents. You can't... Buy it. I cannot buy those little guys in the jars who look like kings and queens and ballerinas. That's just a complete crock when I look at it. And it's not enhanced by the fact that it's never referenced again. <laughs> in fact, if you think about it, those guys in the figures are what the creators of the Batman TV show would do with the premise of Frankenstein. Oh, you created life? Big deal. I got like six of these guys. Take your pick. <laughs> I don't, I it don't makes know. a mockery of the entire enterprise to me.
1: I don't know, Al. Um, it, it, it's, it's interesting that you describe it as making a mockery as if the, the, there's something inherently dignified about the, the process that's being made fun
0: of. Plus, just being like the creation of life, uh, the life after the borders of life and death—something that's been like engaging in philosophers and I, I, I would I would say throughout the eons.
1: I would say that that's what makes the film subversive is that it makes a mockery of that. There's there's something inherently subversive about its its themes that uh, I think can be read as as coming from. Uh, a standpoint of, of an outsider. Certainly it, it has been argued by, by certain uh, uh, writers that, that there's a queer sensibility uh, uh, defined in, in Pretorius representing a gay man who can't create life with uh, a heterosexual woman so he comes up with a way to create it in a petri dish kind of mocking the sense of homosexuality being unnatural by kind of reflecting back if you think that this is unnatural well how about this that makes a mockery out of everything that's considered natural and i think that that aspect adds a level of of danger to the mocking that uh, is conscious and uh, subversive.
0: Hmm. My definition on subversive requires a little bit more of a, like a point of view is like you to me, to be something truly subversive. You mustn't just be like a punk who just goes, look at this, this is bullshit and that's bullshit. And this is all bullshit. That's just too simple too reductive if you don't have anything out to replace it. And I find in specific like that, what you described about his attempt as a, a way of looking at the film as a homosexual person is an attempt to make a mockery of the whole birthing process would be interesting if not for the figures, because the figures make When you have bring out the figures to me, it's making a, a mockery out of the very idea of what Frankenstein's mission is, which makes Pretorius's dedication to having Frankenstein persist in his mission all the more it takes all the air out of it I don't so, know I
1: don't if you take a step back from it and 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 you look a little bit more closely at the scene the little figures uh, uh, I I think that there's there's some there's some bigger issues being explored there I think with, um, the fact that he creates a king and a queen an archbishop who happens to be sleeping which is a, a pretty blasphemous thing to, to talk about. I think the king escapes his little jar because he wants to to fuck the the, the queen so badly. Mm-hmm. so there's this kind of a playful sense of figures that normally uh, represent authority kings, queens royalty, organized religion. Being shown as oh, I created these, you know, like cultures, and and look at look look at how randy they are. Let me play with them, you know. That these things that society says we should revere are really not worthy of it. I think that mm-hmm. is. Part of the point of view of, the, of that scene I see that I but there's... I would say
0: that the guy who that, uh, the guy who presents that viewpoint is not going to be the guy who's going to be so dedicated to have Frankenstein persist his mission because that viewpoint precludes you valuing any sort of like well, that,
1: that, that that's that. an interesting point what, what does Pretorius want out of creating this bride. Why do, why is it so important to him to continue his work with Henry? What's in it for Pretorius?
0: And I think that, like, ultimately, the answer in Whale is that Whale... Is very, very ambivalent upon the idea of making this movie. And the
2: bride is sort of his. It's his way of basically being putting the Raspberry to the whole process of the film as you're watching it. Well, I think instead instead of Raspberry, I'd I'd more lean with Jeff and go satire. But I think these these figures represent three different things. Uh, first of all, they do advance the film on a plot level, in that it, it's another way to to create life. If Frankenstein has figured out one way um, through the dead bodies, Pretorius has come up with this idea of growing people like plants, which is absolutely a more wacky and further out there idea. But it it, it's, also, it's with, also
1: more sinister.
2: It's more sinister, but but it it, it fits in with his with his character who we also very much contrast with, uh, Dr. Frankenstein, who, even though we, we clearly aren't supposed to approve of his actions or, or relate, relate to him as a protagonist, he's still somebody with one foot in morality. Whereas even if it's a morality of regret at how he's defied morality, whereas Pretorius is somebody who personifies evil. And when the monster at the end says, you stay, we belong dead, he's, uh, he's pointing at the right guy. And the, the third thing the little figures do is announce to us that we can let our imaginations go a little wild this is not going to be an incredibly realistic film this is a film it's that is going to deal with its themes it, yes in the in broad ways with satire with horror and with comedy
0: mm, but i would go and say that's the exact reason why i don't care for the film is that its treatment of the phantasmagorical is at odds with the very real concepts of how our ethics and morality and and our the stuff that we value gets influenced by science and it would and to maybe a personal extent i kind of take seriously these kind of ethical questions which are, are of course prevalent to us today in, for example in the cloning issue and when you have those figures scampering around and making little chipmunk noises. It it throws the whole game away and throws any of these concepts that I found interesting in the Frankenstein story to the window because it's clear about a guy who does it. At that point, Whale makes apparent that he does not care and you watching should not care. And I, as a result, take that to proceed to then not care. Right. Ultimately, it might be that the things I value more on Frankenstein were just just left um, wanting because of that kind of cynical attitude that happens by, show, by, by, by showing these people. I'm just left thinking, well, wh- why should I care about what will happen? Because this is the kind of movie where Pretorius could cast a spell or turn invisible himself or, <laughs> or a, there'd be a dragon would show up. I'm like, well, whatever. <laughs> I lose almost all engagement to it. There's one part of the movie, though, that gets me back into the engagement. You guys hinted on it. And it is a part where it's a framework where all that stuff does make sense because where I think Whale cares about is the attitude of someone who's... is making a story of which it's not necessarily his, but it's his attempt to interpret. Because the fact that Elsa Lanchester is both the author that you see in that framing device. I agree with you, it makes it clear, these are guys telling ghost stories. It's not It's not about science, and it's about why people tell stories. Think about what that means by having her be the bride. Think about what that means by having the bride not have a voice, if, if you're a woman who made this story. <laughs> Think about what that means that the monster Let's Dr. Frankenstein go, but Pretorius stays, even though Dr. Frankenstein has done deeds, but what makes it different is that his wife, or would-be wife, comes back to go and uh, uh, rescue him, that she's at the door. and it's that there is an actual relationship between a man and a woman that Pretorius has no interest in. That's why Pretorius has to perish to me which by the way of course is a kind of a giant plot hole because last time we see her she's totally tied up and being held captive <laughs> and then she just appears just which, uh, uh, which i mean okay that's a basic plot thing that the movie doesn't even bother to do but then when you think of it in context of like the bride really being mary the bride is mary shelley's interpretation of what does it mean for me to be in my own story? And I think another notable horror writer, Stephen King did a similar effect in his dark tower series. What does it mean for a character to put themselves in the story and their interpretation of the story in a way? I think this may be the one of the most, this, that particular framing device makes this the most Charlie Kaufman esque of all the horror movies ever made until the cabin in the woods. Well,
1: I would say that the fact that you brought up Charlie Kaufman, Probably is yet another underline as to why this film is my favorite James Whale film. Hmm. And I would say that there is a Kaufman-esque aspect, a kind of playfulness on a a kind of mechanical level of of the aspects of the plot. Yeah, it is Uh, a
0: film that is not just aware of its own ridiculousness. But I think part of the thing the film is trying to do is to make us in the audience be aware, okay, what you're watching is kind of silly. I yes. think that's what tr- trying to do.
1: I, I, I think that there's a, a kind of ineffable quality uh, where just kind of he combines his, uh, a, a comedic sensibility with this kind of gothic horror, with a kind of modern comedy, with... Uh, a, a kind of exploration of, of outsiderness to a kind of queer sensibility that I believe has been touched upon to the, the sense of loneliness to the aspect of, of the style of the cinematography of the lighting of the art direction of uh, uh, every aspect of the film. Uh, to the fact that it was a sequel to a successful movie, so he was given a certain latitude in his direction, a, a freedom to uh, kind of explore aspects that other films at the time weren't weren't exploring. I enjoyed Dwight Frye's. Kind of malevolent assistant. Dwight Fry, by the way, played Renfield in Todd Browning's Dracula. He played the hunchback assistant Fritz in the original Frankenstein. And James Whale enjoyed him so much that even though Fritz died in Frankenstein, he brings Dwight Fry back and kind of combines multiple characters to be, in an effect, a, a Dr. Frankenstein's new assistant. But uh, uh, it's a completely different character. Um, And and he does does an uh, amazing job. I think the point I'm trying to make is that uh, there's a level of attention being paid to every character to the overall feel of it. There's a certain sense of style and individuality that's brought to it that... Other films of the time don't have, I guess.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Now, as you guys could see, like there's a lot of different angles that Bride of Frankenstein allows you to think of. And I wanna give a really quick tangent to ask you guys, because you guys are more familiar with the universal legend to me, to ask upon in the Frankenstein films, where's Igor? There's no Igor well, to be found. Igor, well, Igor
2: he, for that matter. He, he, the,
1: he, Igor he, comes take, in a sequel. I take. believe Son of Frankenstein is where he's
0: introduced.
2: Okay. Yeah. Good, good. That's I'm sorry, Jeff. Do you mind if I just took this? Because you just. Yeah. I, Igor will show up, played by Bella Lugosi. In the third uh, Frankenstein movie, uh, Son of Frankenstein, as well as uh, some subsequent uh, films after that, including uh, in Frankenstein versus the Wolfman, when uh, Bela Lugosi plays the monster. Lugosi uh, mm. famously declined to play the monster in the first Frankenstein film, but uh, when that was such a success, he, he quickly uh, came on board. Huh. Fascinating. And it puts like the
0: line from uh, Tim Burton's Ed Wood where uh, Lugosi rails against Karloff in a whole new way. Mm-hmm. Whale worked so much out of his system <laughs> that he was going to pivot to a remarkably different film with his next effort. Uh, Remember last night. I
1: sat down to my supper, was about the princess. I said my prayers and went to bed. That's the last they saw of me. Don't hurt me. I beg you don't hurt me. Please don't me. The film is about a group of young, wealthy people who are having a huge party in which they're drinking a lot and going around to various places, causing frolicky havoc. But what ends up happening is that the characters start dying off. Hmm. And nobody can remember what happened because everybody's drunk. (laughs) So the, the title comes from everybody's attempt to remember what happened the night before. But bodies start dropping like flies, and then a friend who happens to be a police inspector starts trying to figure out who's the one who's doing all of these murders. So there's this strange balance of moods where you're supposed to be laughing at these fun people being drunk and, and disorderly, and, but th- something, something's off because what's supposed to be shown as fun carefree wealthy people who the audience should emulate what's shown on the screen are are obnoxious hateful selfish conceited idiots mm. and it's it's fascinating to watch because i wonder how much is my modern interpretation of it and how much of that opinion was shared by Whale? It's interesting. Mm-hmm. What's What's also interesting about it is that this weird screwball comedy about rich people murdering each other and dropping dead as they drunkenly can't remember what they did the night before, mm-hmm. uh, apparently was Whale's favorite film out of his filmography mm-hmm. and is the movie he agreed to make Bride of Frankenstein, if he would be allowed to make the script oh, wow. of this film,
2: you know, I'm mm-hmm. I'm sorry to hear this went uh, south so badly because the the plot description you're given you're giving sounds to me like it would be a perfect vehicle for James Whale. Well, but, yeah, and yeah. you
1: you would think that his kind of subversive sensibility would would play out. It's really a striking film, actually, now that I, I, I think about it, because mm-hmm. if you think about Whale's earlier work, particularly his, his films from a female point of view, Waterloo Bridge, Impatient Maiden, even Kiss Before the Mirror, One More River, there's, there's class issues, mm-hmm. but there, there, there's a kind of exploration of the underdog, maybe, in the sense, or a certain kind of uh, respect for people. But in this film... Like the wealthy people are charming and funny and the servants are the humorless authority figures that the funny rich people make fun of. Really, uh-huh. it, it's, it's really interesting to, to watch it from that perspective.
0: Um, I'm going to put right. out a theory on this and I'm going to say right up front that I don't really have a basis on it. Maybe you guys can enlighten me because you're more familiar with Whale and his work. I want to look at that movie as Whale's maybe psychological reaction to making Bride of Frankenstein, making and being harassed by people to make this film. And who is doing the harassing? The Hollywood community of rich, entitled people who I'm going to guess have very little reluctance towards expressing mockery towards people who are not over their station. And you are swimming in that environment, especially when you are a filmmaker who wants to get films made. What would be the attitude of someone from that? Now, again, I'm putting a lot of weight on, on Whale's psychological thing, and it might not be justified. But yeah, I just want
1: to my, – My immediate reaction to, to what you just said is that that's quite a stretch. I, I don't buy it. I think remember last night is a really interesting film to watch from an academic point of view. I don't think it holds up. It's not particularly funny and the humor kind of misses the mark, but it's interesting to see it as an example of a film that tries to do something, but that doesn't necessarily succeed. (laughs) Um, uh, It's also interesting that it's in that, that little window in between the production code being instilled and films that were in production before the production code was instilled in that like six month period, they, they still completed production on films that didn't have the production code stamp on it. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of premarital sex and, you know throughout the the course of the film, these people are drinking like mm-hmm. fish, they're getting drunk, getting behind the wheel of a car and laughing as they run over people. I mean, the film is that wow. kind of broad okay. and they're they're being given leeway because they're wealthy. That's very explicitly right? underlined in the film is that their wealth
2: gives them status. Oh, this could, would have been quite the political commentary if it didn't suck, huh? Right. Yeah, <laughs> right. it,
1: it, it, there's an interesting film inside it, but it, it just doesn't quite work. <laughs> there are also uh, two specific references to universal horror films in remember last night at at one point in a flashback one of the girls wraps up uh they're they're at a swimming pool in this particular scene one of the girls wraps a bath towel around herself and says i am dracula's (laughs) daughter now dracula's daughter (laughs) happens to be the sequel to dracula that james whale was on track of of directing but he refused to do because he didn't he didn't like the, the final script. He wanted to go in a different direction. So he ended up not directing it, but he put in that little jab. Yeah. And then at another point in the film, the two protagonists are talking to each other and she's a little afraid because someone with a gun might be in the next room coming after them. And she, uh, she says, I'm, I'm so scared. I feel like I'm the Bride of Frankenstein. And her husband turns to her and says, "Thanks. I guess that makes me the monster, right? You know."
2: So, there, there's, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. There, there are these yeah.
1: little meta references that mm. you know a year after the bride yep. uh, would have been yep. in the minds of moviegoers watching the next release from the same director. Right,
0: so. right. I think this is one of the things that makes looking through the director's body of work so special. Because if you do get a chance to see Remember Last Night and then look at Bride of Frankenstein, I feel there's ways that the two have a kind of strange commentary or co-commentary on the other.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I would say uh, uh, even more so with The Invisible Man in terms of its kind of... uh... Uh, playing around with notions of the social order Mm -hmm. and uh, class issues as well.
0: Yep, societal accountability or lack thereof and how quickly that can lead to murder and destruction. Yes. Yes. Now, it's interesting that this film and In Bride of Frankenstein, both films that traffic in like sort of things of disrepute or things that should not be in different levels. Mm -hmm. But then Whale follows up with one of the most reputable, biggest dramatic non-horror successes with his film Showboat in 1936. Old Man River, that old man River He must
1: know something, but don't say nothing He just keeps rolling, he
0: keeps on rolling And it's a musical, it is his first musical I believe, Yes, that takes uh, place around a 40 year time span about a, a family on a showboat, a lady on the showboat meets a charming gambler and the film partly goes over her life with the gambler and does another role about a African American lady trying to pass as white and her attempts to break into showbiz as well and it goes in parallel tracks among these stories
2: so uh, unfortunately uh, none of us had a chance to actually see the film but its reputation uh both as a film and as a uh, a broadway musical is is such that it, it has an important place in musical history it was the first Musical to be plot-oriented. Most musicals up until then were of the Bub- Busby Berkeley style of let's put on a show. The,
1: the Just a collection co- of songs. E-
2: exactly. And, and this was the first major musical where the songs were part of an outside show business story. Its most famous sequence, which is often uh, shown when the film is discussed, is Paul Robeson singing uh, Old Man River. Paul Robeson is, is one of the early African-American star, had a tremendous singing voice, and he delivers this song with a lot of power. Is the rest of the movie uh, up to par with that? We we don't know. We haven't seen it. But that one claim to fame is something.
0: <laughs> the film made such an impression that it led to two different um, remakes, both of which uh, were musicals and, ironically, uh, doomed the movie for me <laughs> because I was trying to see it, and both places where I tried to see it had the later musicals right, available.
1: Right, right. Uh, yeah, yeah. If anyone listening knows where we could find the James Whale-directed Showboat somewhere on video. We'd be curious to find it.
0: Now, he followed Showboat by doing a very interesting take of a sequel of a movie that he did not originate. No. With his film The Road Back in 1937 is a... Spiritual sequel to the magnificent All Quiet on the Western Front. And it's about the story of the despair of disillusionment of four men who have returned to civilian life in Germany after
1: World what War they went I. through
0: in the First World War.
1: I should point out that it's one of those movies where its backstory might be more interesting than the 90 minutes that ended up being shown on screen as the hmm. film. It's it's an infamous story, because what happened was the uh, Lemley family, who founded Universal Studios, went bankrupt in 1937 while The Road Back was being made, and they had to sell their studio to a corporate group of stockholders who had no interest in any kind of artistic sensibility and immediately proposed multiple cuts. In addition, there was this very unique perspective that was going on where the German government by way of the Nazi party had their representative in the Hollywood office demand cuts be made in the film that were seen as being negative towards Germany and the new owners of the studio were so afraid of, of losing that overseas market that they butchered the film that Whale created from what the research I've done Whale had a director's cut of the film that was about an hour and 40 minutes in length the film as it exists today, is about 75 minutes and has some pretty dramatic cuts. In one scene, the, they literally cut from one character about to say a word, his mouth opens, and then there there's just a, a very sloppy cut to the audience applauding him after he's finished. And you, you never hear what he has to say. You know, I'm sure it was probably some anti-German screed so something that, that that was offensive to the the Nazi sensibility that the the new owners of Universal Studios cravenly gave into, and and wow. and the film as it exists, it, it's one of those infamous lost films, the quote unquote James Whale director's cut of The Road Back.
2: What a double slap in the face! Not only censored. But censored by Nazis, right? Yeah, and yeah. as
0: it turns out, I believe that in, even if it's cut, Germany censored it anyway.
1: Oh, it the, the film ended up being banned yeah. uh, there anyway. So all for naught anyway. It was all for naught anyway. yeah. anyways. And then, of course, you know, four years later, we went to war with them. So, it, yeah. but but at the time, it's it's kind of fascinating to think about. What what what's sad is that is that I don't think anyone has ever found those missing scenes. That were cut out of it. Now, one aspect of the road back that is interesting, I find, is the scenes that Whale shoots of the battles, the 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 final battles of World War I before the soldiers head home. What was like a revelation to me was that these scenes are sophisticated dolly and tracking shots over trenches that are lit with this expressionistic lighting mm-hmm. and um what came to my mind was Stanley Kubrick's Paths of Glory Ooh. I guarantee you he saw the road back because there are shots that are almost like telegraphing scenes that Kubrick would would e- explore in his film about World War 1
0: If was one thing that like Whale has shown through his films; it's this level of enthusiasm for using the tools of filmmaking to express things in a way they haven't been done before.
1: Yeah, and, and the, the, the there's a striking shot of uh, the armistice has has been um, announced, but it hasn't. The message hasn't worked its way all the way through the trenches. Mm. So the the soldier at the very end of the trench is. He's trying to find the the German uh, in no man's land and, mm-hmm. and, and he's he's firing and someone fires at him. And of course, he's killed the moments before the note is brought into his trench. Oh, wow. It's just this amazing kind of play of, of, of irony. But uh, again, you know, the film is so truncated and so sloppily edited that I can't necessarily recommend it.
2: My understanding is that this uh, had a devastating effect on on Whale's career and his future in Hollywood.
1: Yes, yes. In addition to the fact that it was um, an an artistic failure, in that he lost control, uh, he didn't have final cut, and all of these things were excised from the film. It was also a financial box office bomb. It 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 helped to bankrupt Mm. Universal Studios. And it was the beginning of the end of of Wales' interest in, in film and cinema. He made at least six or seven other films after The Road Back, but there's a sense from the little biographical information I had that he was so destroyed by his experience Mm -hmm. of working on this film that he passionately poured his heart and soul into only to have his work butchered. While he made other films afterwards, I I, I think his heart wasn't in it. Hmm. And um, the fact that he didn't necessarily have success and that he kind of quietly retired in 1941, four years later, is a kind of testament to, I, I think, That maybe his experience on the film broke him
0: it's always tragic when you see this point which of course happens and that when an artist just finds that his vision gets crushed and taken away from him and cut all to hell and yet when the film bombs you get blamed for it anyway right yeah Sometimes we just aren't aware when an, when an, when an artist does have this horrible thing befall them. Sometimes we do. Like Michael Camino with Heaven's Gate. And I think if true, Jeff, then Wales's misfortune becomes all the more tragic because at this point he had attained a massive amount of clout. He from, really had. From Showboat get had a great amount of recognition. And recognition to him for his efforts. And this was not too far along from Bride of Frankenstein, which was an enormous hit. So he was feeling at one of the heights of his ability to get the film he wanted to make and to then see that get crushed, you know? And I want
1: circumstances that were entirely
2: out of his control.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So it becomes all the worse.
2: Right. Right? So yeah, to a truly tragic downfall of James Whale's career, and sadder still, his life ended in tragedy after uh, having uh, suffered a number of strokes. He did uh, kill himself. But history has a way of remembering who needs to be remembered, and in 1998, a wonderful uh, biopic of James Whale came out called uh, Gods and Monsters*. Uh, directed by Bill Condon, with Ian McKellen playing James Whale. And it was uh, a critically acclaimed film that I think brought his memory back to a lot of folks. But even if that didn't happen, when, when we look at the overall arc of Whale's career, you see such innovation. And while he had a number of fine films outside the genre. For me, it it still comes back to those four universal horror films, those films that basically invented a genre and will be treasured for as long as people watch movies.
1: I'd have to agree. Yeah, the the, the four films he made within the horror genre, even though he personally did not value them and look down on them. I think they afforded him a way of communicating with a freedom that melodrama and courtroom drama and romantic comedy didn't allow him to do, and he could instill some of his personal vision, some of his idiosyncrasy, some of his outsider. Uh, aesthetic to this gothic horror genre and it was a perfect marriage
2: and it's a lesson that uh, can still apply today because even now uh, genre films horror films are somehow considered not serious not uh, worthy of the highest praise yet when when they get it right when horror is used to uh, create an allegory or to say something important, uh, that genre becomes so powerful.
0: I find that in Wales's most vibrant works that we've managed to go explore during our conversation, I see what you were saying, Jeff, in the sense of this creative spark. But maybe a better way of putting it even is there's just an exuberance of an, an outsider. Excellent word, yeah. That a person out from outside, there's a kind of joy of being able to work with, as what Orson Welles said, the greatest train set a person ever has a chance to use. And have us in on the joke or the magic. That he's getting away with doing that, you know? And that way, if I would like to remember Whale as when he makes a film and he sees how an audience can react to it and grab it and hold her attention, that he has a little gleam in his eye as he just cries out, It's alive! It's alive! It's
1: alive! It's alive!
0: Yes. And so on that note, I want to go thank you guys out for listening to on our exploration of the work of James Whale. Jeff, I want to thank you so much. I, we found like your biographical look at early Hollywood and James Whale's films just invaluable for giving a look at this guy and what he's about. Well,
1: I just want to thank both you, Al, and you, Brad, for allowing me to come on. Uh, uh. Early Hollywood is something that I have a passion for, and I don't have a lot of outlets to express my feelings or my thoughts about it, so I appreciate you allowing me to come on to the Director's Club and explore. Um, And I look forward to future episodes and
2: uh, other opportunities I have of uh, interacting. It it was a pleasure, and we are not done with classic Hollywood yet.
0: (laughs) Yes, uh, you. it was great having you, Jeff, and we hope you're able to come back soon.
1: I'll be more than happy to, and thank you to all the listeners of the Directors Club for uh, indulging us.
0: And you can go and uh, reach us at the Directors Club online with your comments and thoughts uh, at the email address of Directors Club Podcast at gmail.com. We're um, of streaming off from iTunes at Directors Club Podcast. And you can catch our episodes over on our website, Directors Club uh, Thanks so much, guys, for listening. Thank
1: you. Thank you.